as we venture into the murky waters of everything you've been told never to bring up at holiday dinner. You'll meet a guy, someone you can trust, a battle-tested, common-sense leader who knows that an extra pair of dry socks just might save your life. That wise old sage has arrived, and he is shouting the Schmidt Show battle cry. Schmidt heads unite! So good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you're at. It's morning for me. It is, I believe it's morning for my guest. My guest this morning is uh, Dr. Arnold Kling. Uh, Dr. Kling is an economist by training. He has been involved in writing and teaching and blogging. He's worked with the Cato Institute. He's been involved in all kinds of, of economics and, and the expertise of economics. Probably one of the, the more respected economists in the country uh, right now. I would, I would Dr. Kling, after, after reading some of your stuff and, and kind of digging into you a little bit, I would put you up there with, uh, with uh, some of the, you know, Milton Friedman, uh, Thomas Sowell, some of those. Would you would you put yourself in that category, or or are you too humble to admit that? Um, I don't think I would uh, put myself up in that category, but I'm flattered. <laughs> well, the stuff that I've read of yours has been incredibly interesting, and and certainly. Um, above my head at some points because I am I'm just a radio guy I'm a pastor by training that's my my original uh, education I've got a degree in biblical studies but uh, ended up kind of stumbling into a radio job and and recently launched the podcast to kind of supplement that go along with the the podcast and to be able to do interviews more like this kind of the long form um, dig into topics a little bit deeper not have to worry about any kind of um, commercial interruptions. So uh, I guess, Dr. Kling, let's start with this. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like I said, I know you've been doing blogging and writing and you've got several books and you worked as a, an economist with the Fed and 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 other things as well. I believe you were involved with uh, George Mason University for a while as well. Am I correct on that? Um, well, I, I spent three years uh, teaching just one course uh, there, so oh, okay. my, I, I, I don't know. If, I don't often mention that as my career. I, I, I describe myself as being on my nth career. The nth career being uh, writing and teaching. Although I uh, retired from teaching a couple of years ago. Um, before that, I had an internet business, an internet-based business. Uh, that was N minus one career. N minus two. I was with Freddie Mac before it became famous. And they, you know, it's the <laughs> housing finance agency. And then before that, I was with the Fed. And um, that's. I guess that's it. You've written several books. One of them being uh, the first one being Under the Radar: Starting Your Net Business Without Venture Capital. Um, is that what kind of launched your internet? Uh, business or internet venture career? No, th- no, that was more of a uh, kind of a cathartic re- retelling of that story. Okay. Um, so what, I started the business in 94, which was very early. There were, only, there were probably fewer than 1,000 websites total mm. when I started it, and, and most of them were, were not commercial. Um, 
fortunately or unfortunately, I kind of think fortunately, I didn't have any kind of business understanding at the time, so I didn't ask any basic questions about demographics when I started it. So uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have started it. But having started it, I was kind of ahead of the game when the Internet tsunami really hit. Right. And uh, so got got lucky there. Now, you also, your most recent book um, is is a book called The Three Languages of Politics. And that is uh, more... I, I don't know if, if if you could you could write a more relevant book for this time in our nation the the polarization between the left and the right and and the people that kind of try to want to be in the middle but don't really seem to know how to be in the middle and and all of that and this kind of leads me to the thrust of the discussion that I kind of want to get into today and that is there seems to me I'm uh, to you know illustrate or or to be upfront or whatever about my bias I always tell people that there's only about 330 million people to the left of me I'm that far right so I'm a, I'm a pretty solid conservative individual and and so that's kind of my bias and I try to I try to acknowledge that bias, and I try to to keep that in mind anytime I have any sort of discussion. Um, and and so, what I've kind of wondered, or or what I can't seem to figure out, is why, in my view, in my my polarized right wing view, how the left seems to find this inherent nobility in poverty, and and actually. Paul Jones was the one that, that turned me on to you, and he said, hey, if that's something you're interested in, this is the guy you need to talk to. So can you, I don't know if it's even possible, but can you kind of start with trying to maybe where this idea comes from, that, that you know, Robin Hood is the hero and the sheriff of Nottingham is, is evil, and, because, and, it's, and it's because he's rich, and the only reason that, that Robin Hood is noble is because he's poor and where this idea of inherent nobility in poverty comes from. Okay, well, uh, I'm actually going to question the premise okay. that people think that, I mean, I, I think you're getting at a point, but I wouldn't call it no, nobility of poverty per se. I, I think what's going on is, I think just in general, people <laughs> think that uh, everyone should contribute to their community. Mm. I think everyone believes that. And, right. Uh, you know, you can take that back to, you know, being in a hunter-gatherer society where, you know, if, if somebody doesn't contribute, that community is going to, you know, they're on the mar- always on the margin of starvation anyway. So right. So they can't afford to have people not contributing. Fine. Um, in a modern money economy, as opposed to a hunter-gatherer society, uh Doing paid work is a pretty standard indicator uh, that you're contributing to your community. Mm. So <laughs> if somebody is poor, it either means they can't contribute, which that's people would say that's okay. Right. We've got to take care of people who are handicapped or whatever. Right. Or somebody who won't contribute, in which case it's not okay. Mm. So, So sort of a self-chosen poverty that comes from you know, not doing paid work, I don't think anyone would call that noble. Right. I think the what's right about your point is that there are people who cannot believe that it is possible that 
people with high incomes are contributing as much as proportional to their income. So the, you know, if the CEO is earning 100 times what the ordinary worker is, <laughs> the, your intuition might be, well, the CEO might be contributing a little more than the ordinary worker, but it mm. might be 100 times. So right. there's something wrong there. And I think that would probably better characterize a left-wing view, not that there's something wonderful okay. or noble about poverty, but there's something ignoble or awful about people who can get a hundred times or a thousand times what someone right. else gets. So is there, is there then it's maybe possible that, yeah, go ahead. Is there then maybe the, uh, maybe a view of, of those who are in poverty that why would anyone choose to be this? They must be forced into it. And, and there's a, an unwillingness to acknowledge that, Hey, some people are just lazy. Um, oh, definitely. De- yeah, the um, you know, that there's the narrative would be that if people are poor, look for a reason that's grounded in oppression. Mm. So that's you know in in this three language of, of, of politics story, I say that the um, the most natural language for a progressive to speak is the oppressor oppressed language. Um, and you know that's again you, know, you can think of that that's a language that goes back to biblical times. You know when you think of you know the Egyptians and the Hebrews, it's right. oppress or oppress. So yep. we, we've got a long history of thinking in those terms. But uh, you know we have to have an updated version in Marxism where the there's an oppressor class, the capitalist class, and the mm-hmm. oppressed, the workers. And so that gets to your point that uh, you know from <laughs> from a Marxist standpoint. If workers are poor, it's not of their own doing; it's of this oppressor's doing. So, how how do we then determine? I mean, in in the world of, of economics, I've always believed that the way I've seen it, I guess, is that if if I am able to command a salary of you know a million dollars a year, and even even if I'm worth it or not, it is somewhat irrelevant. But if I'm able to command that kind of a salary or, or convince my employer to give me that kind of a salary, well, then I'm, you know, good for me. And, you know, so what, I guess. And, and how do we then determine how much a person is contributing to society based on how much they're or, or in proportion to or what the appropriate ratio is? to what they're earning as to what they're com- pro- providing for their society or their community? Well, I think you know, that's a great question. My answer probably wouldn't satisfy a progressive, but one of the characteristics of a progressive is they believe that there's some, they, they, they act as if they believe that there's some kind of perfect justice out there and uh, you know, we just have to arrive at it. Mm. And there are evil people who are stopping us from arriving at it. My view is that there's an awful lot of randomness and luck. I think you know I, I I could tell the entire story of my internet business in terms of luck, both good and bad, that happened. Um, it'd be very hard to make a convincing case that I earned precisely what I contributed to the community mm. uh, in 
with that. And I think that's true of most people. You know, you've got very, uh, very loose relationships between what people are doing and uh, and sort of economic output. It was, you know, it's one thing when everyone's producing bushels of wheat, and you can say, ah, well, you produced more bushels of wheat than I did, so you got more money. I understand that. You know, but when you're an accountant or a social media marketer right. or any one of these <laughs> modern occupations, you know, it's you're not going to have a uh, precise measure of your contribution to the community mm-hmm. through that occupation. You're just going to have to uh, have to live with that. You know that there's no there's no expert out there who can tell you who's contributing more and the market kind of, you know, has its has its mechanism. It's it's a. I think it's, a, it's about as good a mechanism as you're going to find, but you, uh, you're not going to be able to say it's perfect. Right. It's not a, a God's eye view of the world. <laughs> right. So as we're as we're talking or kind of trying to come back to the the concept of of inherent poverty or or I'm sorry inherent nobility in poverty or or. How did, how did you word it? The not necessarily the inherent nobility, but but the the uh, anyway. I can't remember how you worded it exactly, but the, this this concept that that somehow poverty is uh, not even it's it's hard to. I'm so I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm struggling to kind of wrap my mind around this because I was convinced that 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 is the leftist view, that that is the progressive view, is that if you're poor, you must be you know, you must be honest and you must be whatever, because the only people who ever get rich are, you know, the evil crooks and, and the hard work and regular Joe who's honest and putting in an honest day's work is never successful. And it's just that whole thing has always bothered me, that whole mindset that that if you are putting in a hard day's work or, or a consistent hard day's work, that you will never be successful. And knowing my family history and, and knowing, you know, my parents aren't, millionaires and, and, you know, rolling in, in beds of cash and swimming in pools full of gold, but they've been successful. They've lived a, a successful life. They're happy with the life they live. I'm only 43 and I'm, I, I feel like I'm well on my way to being a successful uh, individual who will be able to retire and, and, and not worry about whether I'm going to have to eat dog food or whatever. But this, this kind of concept is something that is, is bothersome to me. So how do we, I, I guess then the question becomes for me, is how do we fix that mindset? How do we retrain people to realize that, hey, success looks different for different people, and and just because you're poor doesn't mean you're noble? Well, I think <clears throat> if, you, if you're trying to put yourself in the mind of a progressive who... Uh, you know, is kind of against the rich and claims to be on the side of the poor. Um, you know, their mind again would be that there's this: the people are of two types. There are the people who are inherently oppressors, and there are people who are inherently the oppressed. And so, if you're one of the oppressed, you're inherently more noble than one of the oppressors. Um, it's. Uh, I think if, if someone has that mindset, I think it's difficult to talk them out of it, but you can just say, try to say that, you know, there certainly are alternative ways to frame 
sort of differences in economic outcomes. They, you know, it, it isn't, you know, it isn't because Jeff Bezos oppressed people that Amazon became successful. It's because uh, <laughs> Amazon developed a lot of uh, products and services that people liked. And so you can argue that it contribu- contributed a lot to society. And I guess, you know, my answer on that is sort of take some basic economics and understand, you know, at least from how economists think in terms of value being created. Um, I did an interview one time with uh, with Walter Williams, and we talked a little bit about the 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 black community and one of the things that he talked about that he saw not so much growing up but later on in life in in, in the university system is that the african american community began to see this like if you were being successful in school if you were getting good grades that somehow you were selling out to the man or 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 something along those lines and and Walter Williams said you know he didn't really know when that changed where it was somehow um it was it was cool or it was it was the 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 right thing to do you know because you were you were you were not betraying your your race or your family or whatever by by giving in and getting good grades because then you were just you know falling into the system or whatever it was and and i've seen that same kind of thing happen in economics back when my grandparents were kids and and even into you know my parents generation there was there was a a view of success that we we held people up you know we would look at people like jeff bezos or bill gates or steve jobs or whoever that had made these you know billion dollar companies and and these huge uh massive entrances into the world of business we would look up to them and we go what are they doing so we can do what they're doing and become successful as well to to somewhat demonizing them and saying well they must be evil if they're that rich if they've gotten that much money they must be bad and we no longer look up to those who are successful but we look down on those who are successful do you know when that changed in the world of economics in the world of business um I'm going to suspect that there that that was always there, and in fact, um, one view, one theory of the Industrial Revolution, which comes from uh, an economist named Deirdre McCloskey, is that uh, around the 1700s and 1800s, people began to dignify what we think of as you know earned success mm. before that you know it was you know either military prowess you know you were a knight mm. uh you could you could fight well or uh <clears throat> or you were part of this natural this inherited aristocracy mm. and so you just in- inherited your your dignity and for a long time, there was a suspicion of people who made their money in commerce, in business, or who innovated in any way. Um, so it was sort of a miracle. Uh, in fact, uh, Jonah Goldberg calls it a miracle in his 
latest book that <clears throat> that people t- changed their minds about that um, became uh, supportive of the innovator, of the merchant, uh, of the banker, and that uh, that change of mindset, you know, produced this a tremendous accumulation wealth of wealth. You can imagine if if all the social messages are uh, don't innovate and uh, Taking money, you know, earning more money is evil. If if that's the the social message, which pe- people argue was the social social message up until uh, the the 1800s or so in, in England, uh, you're not going to get much of a, a wealth increase if, if if people are arguing it down. So in some ways, it's quite normal for people to resent and misunderstand mm. the process of creating businesses, creating wealth. Um, and we're kind of lucky that over the last few hundred years in the Western world, we we have recognized the value of that and acknowledged the value of that. We just hope that that recognition doesn't go away. So it's it's almost cyclical in history then to see some of these, these where there's a there's a, a, a demonization of the of the creators or the producers, if you will. And and then realizing that hey we actually need more of those so there there's a dignification of it is it is it cyclical in history or am I am I reaching for something that's not well, really there I, I, it's hard I guess the way I read McCloskey is that we have almost never had this uh, support for uh, innovation and wealth creation hmm. that. That's that phenomenon just emerged again in in England around the end of the 18th century, and um, you know has continued in the Western world since. Uh, but before that, you didn't have it. And her, you know, part of her claim is that the sort of the some of the technical know-how that was needed for the Industrial Revolution was around for you know thousands, hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was keeping the industrial revolution from happening was the uh, low regard for commerce and innovation. So it's essentially, and and it, I mean, it sounds like what you're telling me is that that my view of it is is just somewhat based in in bias. I just kind of assumed that this was a new thing that we were demonizing wealth creators and and it sounds like kind of the ab- the opposite is actually true. I think that might be right that huh. it, there it's really more normal in human history uh to demonize um the wealth creators. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I I guess I I'm I'm going to have to go back and 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 do some more reading. You said her name was Deirdre McCluskey? McCluskey. McCluskey. Yes. Quite a few books. Okay, I'll have to dig into that one. I, it's a name that I, yeah. I've not heard. I'm, I'm not a big studier of the world of economics, so that is something I'll have to uh, have to dig into. So, then to kind of maybe bring some of this around to a more modern world and a more relevant discussion for what's happening in today's world. You mentioned Jeff Bezos. He's now what he's now considered the richest world man in the world, worth a hundred and. Thirty billion dollars, or or whatever the the number is, um, is 
is that the nature of business? Because it seems to me more and more that small business is is crumbling to the under the weight, under the pressure of people like Amazon, like Microsoft, and so on. But then at the same time, I look around and I see all of the small businesses that are profiting from and are benefiting from having access to things like Amazon and eBay and, and things like that. And in fact, entire cottage industries popping up around all of those. Is Where are we headed in the world of economics? Is, is small business going to eventually just disappear and everybody's going to be uh, you know, wrapped up in the, the, the wave that is Amazon and, and others? Uh, great question. I won't claim to know the answer. <laughs> the, I, I will say that if you'd asked me the question in the 1990s, I would have made a big bet on smaller business. Mm. So I would not have predicted the emergence of you know, the Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, that phenomenon, I, I just I thought the Internet was more democratizing than that. Mm. Now, I, I think there's still some potential for the Internet to be a democratizing force, but we're going through a period right now where that doesn't seem to be the case. And um, so... You know, some people extrapolate where we are now and say, well, it's just going to become more concentrated. Um, others say, well, this is just an aberration that at some point the, <laughs> the natural forces will, uh, will lead to something more democratized. On that front, I would say if you, if you look at it from a world perspective, there are just a lot more successful entrepreneurs from outside the United States than there ever were. Mm. And, um, and there's just a, a much, much faster growth of a middle class outside the United States than the United States. So you, can, you, you want to be careful not to just look at what's going on in this country. And that's and see and that's the other thing that that I have I've tried to be because I have a tendency to get somewhat myopic in my view of the world that that the United States is such a driving force on the global economy and and we we essentially control everything and and that's pretty common I think among most Americans that it, that if it doesn't happen in the U.S. it doesn't matter um, and yeah. and that's just not not at all the truth anymore and and. So then how do we how do we as the little guy like for me trying to kind of capitalize on the world of the internet using podcasting like say my regular uh you know 5 day a week job is a is a 3 hour day talk radio show on on terrestrial radio and recently kind of expanding out into into the the world of the internet the noise floor of course is is huge especially when you're doing a political talk you know there's so many pundits out there uh, that are putting out such good product, it, it, it seems very difficult to kind of break into that world. And I would assume that that's true of, of any kind of market uh, with the advent of the Internet. Because I can, I, I mean, I literally, I just bought a new cell phone off the Internet yesterday, and it was 
for Friday, and it was it was all based on, you know, there's a, it's a it's one website where you can go and meet up with a, a gazillion different sellers that are willing to sell you a cell phone and give you a a, a gazillion different opportunities or or products or or choices or colors or whatever. Um, is it is it going to get harder for the regular Joe to get his voice heard in that world, or is it easier? Because the, the YouTube seems to suggest, you know, the big cable conglomerates are becoming um, somewhat irrelevant, but you know, the world of podcasting seems almost the opposite. So I, I guess I'm not sure how I feel about all of this. Yeah. Um, I guess my view is there are, I think, more opportunities than ever for um, small businesses. I think there are, the key is to uh, <coughs> find problems that are sort of obviously problems but they're not obviously problems that other people are working on. Mm. So if you're going to, you know, I wouldn't tell your listeners uh, to try to start a career in political podcasting just because there are a lot of people trying to solve that problem. Right. I'm not saying that you, you, you personally shouldn't. I'm right. No, yeah. what I would. Um, but there are, uh, I, I think if you, uh, if you look around and say, you know, what am I not satisfied with with my life? I'll, I'll throw Mm-mm. a random example. I hate all the spam phone calls that I'm getting on my phone. Right. Somebody comes up with a good solution, good effective solution for that problem, ought to be able to make money at it. Yeah. You know, so, um, and uh, you, know, you don't have to have as dramatic example of that. There, there are just all sorts of right. maybe all sorts of little things in your life that you could you could see improving. What did I wish existed that doesn't exist, and then how do I make it exist? Yeah, so, somewhat. You know, every every annoyance in your life is a potential business opportunity. If you can solve it for yourself, that's a good thing. If you can solve it in a way that's general enough for other people then you have a business. That's mm. one way to think about it. Uh, and it's you know, never been easier to kind of get the word out right. about something. It's never been easier to find partners. Uh, so that's the more optimistic yeah. way of looking at it. So speaking of that, optimistic, that is something that, that I have a tendency, having been involved in radio for the last several years and some of the things that I've, experienced in life, I, I always considered myself a f- pretty optimistic individual. I just, you know, when my kids, you know, told me they were going to go to a friend's house for, a, you know, a, a party or whatever, I just assumed they were going to have a great time and, and things were going to be fun and, and all of those. And, and my wife was the one that goes, yeah, but what if they get in a car accident? What if this happens and all of that? And I'm just thinking, oh, things, yeah, it's going to be fine. You know, just life works out. It just always does. I've always had a pretty optimistic view of things. But also being involved in radio, I've, I've become somewhat cynical and, and, and distrustful of of the rest of the world, how do you overcome that in, in, in all of these discussions, whether it's economically or whatever, 
you know, overcome that in the world of business and go, hey, like you say, it, it, there is a possibility out there. There is a an opportunity and I don't have to get stuck in this mindset that I'm just going to live in poverty for the rest of my life and I will have to figure out how to be noble in the midst of that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think some of it is well, just built into people's personality that mm. they've like, got a high rate of anxiety and negative emotion, uh, so it's hard for them to get out of that. I uh, We're kind of in, in the realm of psychology, not economics. Right, yeah. A little out of my area. Of right. <laughs> so, so then I guess maybe to try and bring it back to the world of economics, do you see the trends in in business that that or or the trends in in the world of economics all of the growth you know everybody everybody hates donald trump but you know one thing it's hard to deny is that the economy seems to be trucking along pretty good at this point do you see that as something that's going to continue or all the, is all of the tariff talks you know going to bring us all crashing down next weekend or or what are your thoughts on on the way the economics outlook is looking forward um okay I, i'll say I, i'm always humble about forecasting right um i'd say as as soon as people become convinced that that We've ended recessions. We'll have we'll have another one. Mm. Um, mm. So um, yeah, I, I guess I I, I don't think I, I think almost by its nature we won't know where the next uh, adverse economic event will come from. Um, but <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't assume that we won't have any right adverse economic events just because we can't see see which one is headed our way. There's a lot of discussion. I live in North Dakota. There's a lot of discussion. Our unemployment levels are are ultra ultra low, and it's causing even some trouble locally. You any any local convenience store that you go to, any local retail store, you'll see a sign, you know, looking for work, looking for employees, um, now hiring and all of that. And does that become a problem? I know we're kind of off the discussion of of poverty and the nobility and poverty, but does that does that local discussion, uh, um, does it ever get to a point where unemployment is just too low? Um, my opinion would be no. Okay. Uh, that may be an outlier opinion. There, there, the, <laughs> uh, there's a common theory that when the unemployment rate gets too low, you're just going to end up with, uh, you know, lots of bidding up of wages and prices, and you'll get lots of inflation. I'm not, I'm not completely convinced by that. That may be right, but um, I think in general, having a, um, I, I, I'd rather have an economy where businesses are struggling to find workers than an economy in which workers are struggling to find jobs. Mm. That's interesting, and and I I would I would agree with you on that, and 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 I would say, and I guess I'm somewhat glad that you you said that you wouldn't necessarily think that there ever is a time of unemployment is too low because it seems I'm seeing that locally specifically there there has not been 
uh, a dramatic increase in wages. Nobody's offering, you know, three, four, ten dollars an hour more than anybody else in the region in order to attract workers. They're going, hey, we got a job and this is what it's available. And we've been trying to fill it for six weeks or six months or six years or whatever the, the time frame is. But they've not really seen that dramatic increase in wages. They're just, you know, hey, we'll figure it out until the right employee comes along. So yeah, I, I would I would say the case study of of your theory is right happening right here in my hometown. Yeah, but I, what I but what you what I wonder, you know, so is you know I think a lot of it is sort of no, sort of social norms and expectations that there's no mechanical relationship between uh, <laughs> unemployment and inflation, but there. There are, you know, people have come to expect over the last 20 years, well, you're not going to get a big raise and you're not going to see prices being jacked up every month. Mm. Uh, what, you know, in the 1970s, we saw exactly the opposite. In the mm. 70s, everyone expected, oh, we've got to get a cost of living increase and, oh, we know that food and energy prices are going to go soaring next month. And... Uh, so it really, uh, in my view, is that these these social norms kind of are very strong at any particular time. We're probably fortunate that right now the norm is no no one expects that mm. they're going to be uh, sharply raising wages and prices. But um, it, there's certainly a, a legitimate fear that those norms could change. Right. Uh, and then when they do, it's kind of hard to put them back to where they were. So once people start expecting, you know, quarterly raises and monthly increases in the cost of living, it's very hard to tamp that back down. Mm. So kind of to to wrap up the discussion here, and, and, and I know you're probably a pretty busy individual and, and I've got other things I've got to get on to as well, but one of the, the things that I heard over the weekend, and, and again, somewhat unrelated to our original discussion, but it's still in the world of, of economics, a lot of the, the, the folks on the left, the progressives that are out protesting, uh, you know, Kavanaugh's confirmation of the Supreme Court and some of the stuff, I saw an article that there's a, a small movement beginning to build on the in the Twitter sphere or on the internet or whatever that, that says we're all going, as Democrats, a bunch of us, we're going to get together. We're all going to quit our jobs to try and force the uh, unemployment rate up into, into a higher number, into some astronomical figure that makes Donald Trump and the, and the president's uh, administration look bad, that they've ruined the economy by creating out of control unemployment is, I mean, it, it just seems like absolute lunacy like to me. Honestly. Yeah, it does. It's, yeah, it yeah. sounded like a fake news article, but I, I couldn't believe that. I mean, is it, that just seems so absurd. Is would, I mean, even if you could get enough people to do something like that, it, what's the economics of that? Would, How does that? It would make it would make life better for everyone else. I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> not, not. I mean, yeah, it, no, I for a little bit. I mean, it make you know sort of. Okay, you quit your job, so you know a new position has opened up for me. Just, just, just seems like yeah. I, 
I, I predict that one goes nowhere. Okay. <laughs> well, and that's kind of my, that was kind of my thought. But I saw that and I thought, they, that can't be serious. That can't be, like, is it, is the view of young people, is their view of economics that that ignorant? I mean, are we not teaching the basics of economics anymore in universities? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, no, that that would be a, uh, I think... Uh, Darwin will take care of those. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. That's probably the best answer I've heard in, in weeks in an interview. Darwin will take care of those folks. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Kling, is there anything that I've missed I mean, in this discussion? I, I admit that, that my my view of this has, has been somewhat ill-informed simply because I was I, so I do two part-time jobs. I do my radio show and I do another part-time job. And and I was working one evening, and and this popped into my head. And I and I'm thinking, where did this mentality come from? That somehow if you're poor, you must be you know noble. You must be honest. I've met a lot of poor people who are poor simply for the very fact that they are dishonest, that they are deceitful, and and just you know, for lack of a better term, bad members of society. And and so, did I miss anything in that discussion, or anything that you think is important for folks to hear? Um, no, I think the um, you know again, you know, progressives and conservatives instinctively fra- you know frame that issue quite differently. Right. Where you know, progressive looks for you know where's the oppression. And a conservative looks for, you know, where is the person's behavior relative to basic social norms? And it's just they're just uh, starting from different places. But maybe if they sort of were to look at things, what you know, what's actually happening, maybe they'd end up not disagreeing as much. Mm, interesting. Interesting. See, that's and that's something that I try to. Um, I try to be honest with, but, but oftentimes, you know, if, if I'm honest with myself, my bias just gets in the way that, that I'm just never, ever going to agree with anything a, a progressive or, or, or a radical leftist believes. And, and so therefore I, I'm, I have a tendency to kind of shut out some of those arguments. And that's why I want to have some of these discussions with people like yourself who are a little bit, maybe more educated and, and, uh, more informed and, and have greater expertise in these areas. So I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time and, and talking with me and, and sharing your thoughts on any of this. Um, like I say, I guess any last thoughts? Um, no, I think that's good. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Kling, I appreciate your time, like I said, and we will hopefully, I maybe have to take some time to, I haven't had a chance. I, I, I literally just learned of you a, a couple uh, days ago, like last week there around this time. So, um, I'm going to have to read your book, the three language of politics and maybe have you on and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Sounds good. All right. Appreciate the time. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Um, so that's, uh, my interview with Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Arnold Kling, um, Dr. Kling, uh, obviously a very intelligent individual, and and uh, that was a, a very interesting conversation for me. Um, informative. I, you know, I'm I'm going to be honest with with you, the listener. I I, I am more than um, willing to admit that I have a a considerable bias to the right, and I have a considerable. Uh, leaning in in a particular direction but that's why 
in my opinion, it is important to have those conversations with people like Dr. Kling that, that maybe have a little bit more expertise in some of this area. And, and what I believe to be true about the, about the, um, the experience of, of poverty and the demonization of the producers is, has actually been kind of the opposite. What I believe to be true was wrong. And so that's, that's going to give me, um, a lot of, um, work to do a lot of study to, to begin down that path and, and see where that leads me. So I, I'm looking forward, uh, to that kind of stuff. So, um, I want to, as we wrap things up here, I want to just run through a, a few news stories real quick to talk a little bit about what's happening. Of course, um, judge Kavanaugh, uh, is now justice Kavanaugh. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh has been confirmed to the Supreme Court. That vote was on Saturday. It was a 50-48 vote. Um, Senator Daines from Montana did not vote uh, because he was at his daughter's wedding. And um, Senator Murkowski uh, of Alaska, uh, I believe, voted present. Um, And, you know, she would have voted no, but because... Uh, Danes wasn't there. It didn't really matter. Didn't change the outcome. So she, uh, you know, in an effort to be whatever she, she voted present withdrew her vote. So that's why it was 50, 48 and only 98 senators were counted. So that's why that happened. So 701, or I'm sorry, 866-766-1776. If you want to call into the show, if you want to join us, you can be on the uh, chat room, the Schmidt heads, uh, free node chat room, um, all kinds of fun stuff going on. So um, another one, so um, Kavanaugh hires Supreme Court's first all-woman law clerk team, um, which is interesting. Um, if he hates women and just wants to abuse them, um, the left will tell you that the only reason he hired all women is so he can have is free reign of probably raping them in the in the uh, chambers, um, so that's probably what they'll say. Um, the conservatives will tell you he just chose the best candidates. They happen to all be women. Um, I'm sure there was some intentionality in choosing all women. I believe he also um, one of the the female is uh, females is black. Uh, the four women are Kim Jackson, Shannon Grammel, Megan Lacey, and Sari. Sarah Nominson, um, they are going to be his his law clerks. Um, Jackson will be one of three black law clerks serving on the Supreme Court. Um, so that's kind of interesting. I, I, you know, the the take on that, I, I'm not sure. Um, I think Kavanaugh, without question, there had to be some uh, politics in that. I, you know, it, it's. Let's just be honest about that, right? I mean, unfortunately, that's the world we live in. That there's going to be, um, there's going to be some of those discussions that take place. You know, you have been seen as anti-woman. You know, probably should make sure you choose at least two women. And Kavanaugh maybe said, "Well, how about I just choose all four women? You know, and and why don't we throw a black woman in there for for good measure?" Now, I would hope that that didn't happen. I would hope that Judge Kavanaugh simply knew these women, 
and and knew that they would do a good job and he chose them purely on the merits of who they are and the merits of their uh, abilities. I, I would hope that that's the case, um, but I don't think anybody in the world of politics is so naive as to believe that that sort of thing and those sorts of discussions didn't happen. Um, the other thing that is is interesting to me is to that has been interesting me to me this weekend is to watch the just the 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 insane meltdown. I, I'm not going to bother with it, but I could play clip after clip after clip of of these these radical leftist. It just I mean, it, it it's hard to even call them sane at this point to to see the screaming and the wailing and the crying and the 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 scratching at the the doors of the of the Supreme Court building. I mean, just the the, the it's it's hard to make a case for for logic and ration and and sanity in these people. Um, one of uh, Stephen Colbert's writers, Ariel Dumas. Which is interesting if you if you look at her Twitter. The first time I saw this, I thought, "That's fake. That's that's conservatives being duped into believing that she's a real person, and it's they're attributing this to someone who's not even real because her 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 Twitter name or her name on Twitter is Ariel Dumas, A R I E L D U M A S." But if you if you kind of stretch it out a little bit, you get a real dumbass. So I I thought at first this has got to be fake. This can't be real. Um, this has got to be them trying to dupe the the conservatives. And it turns out apparently I haven't been able to to find anywhere that says it is fake. But um, she wrote in in one of her Twitter things that whatever happens, I'm just glad we ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. And that's, and that's, that is the heart of this discussion that we've been having over the last several weeks about Judge Kavanaugh. For anyone that wondered what the goal of the left is or was in this discussion, that's it. In a rare moment of honesty, the left has shown their true colors. When Ariel Dumas says, whatever happens, I'm just glad we ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. Now, again, I, we may end up being proved wrong that this, is, that this is a fake account and she's not really a writer for, for Colbert. Apparently, over the weekend, she has uh, issued an apology. Um, but... I don't, I don't, like I said, uh, one website says, uh, the writer of this vile tweet is a writer on the Stephen Colbert show and has nearly 40,000 followers on Twitter. Um, the, it appears to be a legitimate thing, but it's, it's funny to me. And, and like I said, I saw it right away and I went, you gotta be kidding me. This has gotta be fake. This is, this is, this is, you know, conservatives being duped, but some of the other, the vile hatred, um, um, one, one tweet said like cement shoes to a mobster, these false rape allegations weren't personal. They were just business. Um, 
these these kinds of attacks, these kinds of like I say, the the vile hatred of the left is going to come out over the next couple of weeks. And here's what I would tell you. If you listen to the Schmidt Show podcast and you're on the left, please continue. Please continue the protests. Please continue standing on the side of the street, screaming and wailing and crying. Please continue the, 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 the resistance at the Supreme Court, at the Capitol. Please continue chasing senators around and screeching and squealing and yelling at them. Please keep doing all of that. Please, please, please continue with the, the childish temper tantrums because I, 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 it only helps us. It only helps the conservatives. It only helps the Republicans. It helps squash the, the big blue wave that everybody claims is coming that I don't buy for a minute. But please, I, I, I implore you to continue the screeching, to continue the screaming and the wailing and the crying and the throwing temper tantrums and harassing old men and, and you know, minorities and, and, and all of the people that you claim to want to help and support and to, to fight for. Please, please, please continue that kind of unhinged behavior because th- that kind of behavior will guarantee you a loss in November. We've got 29 days until the election. And for those of you who are on the, on the right, the conservatives, please, 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 please get out and vote. We, we, we need turnout. We need to come out and we've got to stop the, the quote unquote Democrats who are vowing for a day of reckoning. Um, it was, was it Chuck Schumer that that's tweeted out over the weekend or who was it? Uh, I think it was Chuck Schumer. I'll have to find it. I'm looking for the article here, but they said a day of reckoning is coming for Republicans. And they said that, that, um, the Republicans must quote unquote, play a, pay a price for Brett Kavanaugh. Like I said, these the people are absolutely unhinged. When Sotomayor and Elena Kagan were were um, confirmed to the Supreme Court, those there was no screeching and squealing and crying and screaming and 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 wailing by the right. We simply acknowledge that they are radical leftists on the court and their views are, are radically different from ours. And we said, okay, you, you, you won the election. You get to choose who's on the Supreme Court. We didn't chase Democrat senators around. We didn't threaten their families. We didn't, we didn't, disclose their personal um, home addresses and things to the internet and encourage people to attack and to threaten and to assault and to, to hound and, and 
stalk them for the rest of their lives. I've seen tweets on on Twitter by radical leftists and mainstream journalists calling for people to follow um, Justice Kavanaugh around for the rest of his life and make sure that he never has a day of peace again. These people are sick and evil and must be stopped. Like, I get that there are still some good Democrats in this country that are just regular folks trying to live their lives and do their things. But to those people, I would say, what happened to your party? And, and do you still want to follow a party and be a part of a movement and a, and a political party that will resort to chasing a person around because if, and 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 following them and 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 assaulting them and chasing their families and doing everything you can to destroy their lives because they disagree with you politically like if that's your party if that's the things that you believe in there's something seriously and significantly wrong with you and you should seek mental help now i can debate on policy i can talk with a with a democrat with a with a liberal about taxation policy whether we should have a progressive tax or a flat tax i can debate the the merits or the demerits of of healthcare regulations. I can, I can talk about and I can debate and I can discuss the, the, the positives and negatives as it relates to, to trade policy and foreign policy and, and aid and military issues. But if, if you're going to resort to stalking, assault, inciting violence against someone because of their beliefs. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's Stalinist, Nazi, communist oppression kind of stuff. That's, that's, not, that's not United States values and, and liberty and freedom. That's, that's not what, that's not what, what the, the, originalist liberal view of politics is. That's not what liberals have ever, you know, classical liberals, guys like John Adams, the second president of the United States, one of the best friends of Thomas Jefferson. That's not what he would have ever, ever considered as an appropriate expression of liberal ideology. And so if we're going to delve into or and devolve into, I should say, if we're going to devolve into that kind of behavior as a nation, th- there's part of me that hopes for this kind of continued behavior because it leads to one of two things. It leads to A, either a complete collapse 
and a failure of your party like the Whigs saw in the 1850s before the rise of the, the, the Republican Party? Or it will lead to a civil war. And it may not be a civil war like a bloody civil war like we saw in, 18, in the 1860s. But a social war, a civil um, division in the country. And it will not be a civil division that will be won by the people who believe that guns are the problem. And it will not be... Here's the, here's the other thing, and I, I want to make this very clear. As a conservative, the civil war that will result or, or could result from this kind of behavior will not be a civil war of conservative aggression. It will be a civil war of radical leftist progressive aggression in which the conservatives will be forced to defend themselves from violence incited by the party of tolerance and acceptance. And if you don't believe that, you've got your head in the sand. Look around. Watch the news clips. Watch these people screeching and squealing and wailing and crying and 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 attacking. You saw the video over the weekend of the the this uh, quote unquote male feminist at a pro life rally kicking a woman, getting out the full on Chuck Norris roundhouse kick to quote-unquote, protect a woman's rights. That is the kind of behavior you will continue to see from the radical left. And it is that kind of behavior that will force conservatives like me and my friends to have to defend ourselves against. I have been, because of my political views, I've been threatened. I've had my family threatened. I've had people threaten my wife, threaten to go to her work. Simply because of what I believe. And here's, here's the truth that, that you'll never hear on the mainstream media as far as it relates to conservatism and conservatives. When Barack Obama was the president, my hope was that as our president, he would go down in history as the greatest president this country has ever seen. Because if Barack Obama does well, the country does well. If the country does well, then I do well. And so for those of you who lean more to the left or who lean more to the liberal side, your hope should be for Donald Trump's success. And your hope should be to see the policy ideals of Donald Trump and his administration and the Republican Party and their control of the House and Senate be the best thing that this country's ever seen. Because if they do well, then the country does well. The country does well, you do well. Hoping for the failure and the demise 
of the ruling party in your nation is like hoping the pilot on your airplane has a stroke and dies just because you don't like the color of his uniform. It's like hoping for a plane to crash that you're riding on because you like the other airline better. It's absurd. So with that, we're over time a little bit today. I, I, I want to end on that note, but this, the, like I said, for those of you on the left, please, seriously, I mean it. Please keep up the screaming and the screeching and the wailing and the crying and the, 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 the insanity. It would, it would be a difficult case to watch these videos of people scratching at the doors of the Supreme Court pounding on the doors and screaming and hollering and yelling. It would hard to be it would hard, be hard to make a case for their sanity. So please, please keep that up because people around America, the regular Joe folks that see this kind of behavior know that they never ever ever want to allow people like that in charge. They never, ever, 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 ever want to see people like that making the rules. And as far as that goes, this idea about democracy, I've been seeing this a lot on Twitter lately too, right? That we need more, a more representative democracy. No, we do not. We do not need a democracy. Democracy, pure democracy is a massive, massive problem. And if you are hoping for a pure democracy... Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, progressive, libertarian, whatever. If you're hoping for a pure democracy, you are hoping for your own demise. The founding fathers of this nation intentionally chose to set this country up, not as a, as a democracy, but as a republic. The difference between a democracy and a republic is quite simple. A democracy is based on mob rule. Essentially, the majority wins. Whatever the majority says is whatever we do. A republic is based on the rule of law. The best and most clear example is a lynch mob. A democracy is a lynch mob. If 51 want to murder someone, if 51 out of 100 want to murder number 99... Well, then guess what? Number 99 is getting a bullet. That's a democracy. If, if 51 out of 100 want to lynch Billy Bob, Billy Bob's going to swing from a tree. But in a republic, the law says lynch mobs are illegal. And it doesn't matter if 99 of 100 want to hang Billy Bob from a tree. Billy Bob is protected by the Republic, by the law. The law says that is not acceptable. The law says he has the right to a fair trial. The law says he has a right to an attorney and to plead his case before a jury of his peers. A democracy says if 99 think he's guilty, then he, he, he hangs from a tree.
So if you are hoping for a democracy, you are hoping for a lynch mob. I, for one, hope for a republic based on the rule of law. And no matter what, the law rules. And if the law says you can't lynch me and you can't take away my right to free speech and you can't take away my right to keep and bear arms and you can't take away my right to religion or you can't force me to quarter soldiers without recompense from the government, you can't take, you can't force me to testify against myself in a court of law. That's what I want to stand on. I want a republic. I do not want a democracy. It is specifically a democracy that the founding fathers warned us against over and over again. And they intentionally set up the government of this great nation to make sure that a democracy never takes hold. A democracy will be a disaster. And for those of you who are listening in other parts of the world who are not from the United States, I would hope that you never, ever, ever fall for the myth that a democracy is the way to go. Your desire for your nation, wherever it is, should always be towards a republic. So that no matter what happens, no matter what your neighbor wants from you, no matter what your neighbor wants to do to you, wants to take from you, that you will be protected by the republic, by the law. This nation in the United States, we were founded on the Constitution. And what the Constitution says goes. And it doesn't matter if 99 out of 100 want to murder you and steal your property, the law says that they are not allowed to do that. And we have, faults included, we have set up a a government to protect that from, to protect you from that happening to you. So as it relates to a, a democracy, be careful what you wish for. Because a democracy ends with someone getting lynched. And I, for one, never, ever, ever want to see that happen. Even if he's guilty, I never want to see that happen. If Billy Bob is guilty, I don't want him lynched. I want him tried. And I want him found guilty. And I want him punished according to the law. And so with that, The Schmidt Show wraps up. It has been a fun, fun show. And uh, looking forward to, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to have Ask Noah. Ask Noah Chalaya from, uh, or have Noah from Ask Noah join me next week. We're going to talk about, there's a lot going on in the world. And... We've got a lot to talk about. I want to do more of this. I want to do more and more of the Schmidt Show, provide more and more content. Um, but we need support to do that. So um, go check out Patreon. I know how you know how to find it. Um, 
Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. I'm Brad Schmidt. This has been the Schmidt Show Podcast, and we will see you next week.